from Luke 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The word of the Lord. Stewardship is the currency of discipleship. In the midst of a sermon series that is considering what it means to be good stewards, that God has entrusted resources to us, and as we aspire to be faithful disciples, that discipleship is played out in the way that we exercise those resources, time, money, and energy that he has given to us. For the last two weeks, we considered time. This week and next week, we're considering money. Although you'll note that even today, uh, it's not necessarily as focused on money as you might expect. And this shouldn't surprise us because stewardship in many ways is a package deal. And if your heart is in the right place, then most of your stewardship falls in line. If your heart is not in the right place, then your stewardship will be out of line. Because all of stewardship is driven by the heart. In fact, from my experience, it's very rare to meet someone who say, is a very good steward with time, but not with money or energy, or someone who's very faithful with money, but not with time and energy. Why? Because all of these are simply expressions of the heart. 
And as the heart is, so goes the rest of the use of uh, the resources that God has given to us. And so as we explore what Jesus has to teach us about the heart and understanding what the heart has to do with uh, stewardship, I'd like to just follow Jesus' line of thought. And if you like to have some kind of framework to hang things on, and first we're going to consider what lies behind the woes that Jesus uh, gives, what the woes teach us, secondly, and then thirdly, how to be clean. So what exists behind the woes, what the woes themselves teach us, and then lastly, how to be truly clean. What lies behind the woes? Jesus has been invited to a dinner party that a Pharisee is hosting. The Pharisee is surprised when Jesus arrives because Jesus does not wash his hands, which is expected in terms of an act of uh, cleanliness. Now, boys and girls, I know that some of you are going to go home and uh, say to your mommy or daddy, I don't have to wash my hands because Jesus did not wash his hands. Now, that is not the point here, right? We know all about germs today, and we wash our hands to be physically clean. But in the ancient world, they didn't know about germs, and that's not what this is about. Washing your hands was a sign of being ritualistically clean. In other words, it communicated to yourself, I'm very serious about being clean before God. And it communicated that to others as well as you washed your hands in a public setting before a meal. In this fashion, it's a lot like praying before a meal. It's intended to communicate something to, uh, to ourselves and to the people around us about our commitment to God, and that's the way that it worked for the Pharisees. What Jesus is going to do is he knows what the Pharisee is thinking, but he's essentially going to say, no, you have it all backwards. Essentially, you have it upside down. And he begins this in verse 39 when he says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Outside you give the appearance or the image of being clean, but inside you're filthy. Now and then you can find a coffee mug on my desk, which on the outside appears to be very clean. But the coffee and milk that went into the mug a week or two previously have changed, right? Chemically changed inside of the mug and it's very dirty. It's disgusting, and if your car is anything like ours, occasionally you find a, t a Tupperware that held a child's lunch, but it fell under a seat. And in the Texas summer, it has cooked and has changed. And you look at the outside of the Tupperware, it's fine, it's very clean, but would you eat what's in there? Or would you put food in there without cleaning it? No, the inside is very dirty. Now this is what Jesus is saying. Hey, Pharisees, you've been so concerned that on the outside you appear to be clean, but on the inside you are filthy. This is the question that we have to wrestle with. Everyone in this room, all of us, are more committed to our images of righteousness than we are committed to our real righteousness. That's one of the problems of the fall. But how can you be more intent after today about being clean on the inside rather than simply thinking about cleanliness on the outside? Jesus has thrown this notion out to the Pharisees, and then he poses an odd question in verse 40. He asks, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Now, it's an odd question because the answer is very obviously yes. 
No Pharisee would say, oh no, God just made the outside, he didn't make the inside. Everyone confessed that God was the creator and had made all beings, but that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is this. If you confess that he's made the inside and the outside, then why are you only busy cleaning the outside? And if the Pharisee really thought about it, he would say, oh, you're pointing out to me that I don't really believe that I have sin on the inside. If I'm not working to clean the inside, then I must believe that the inside is already clean and only the outside is dirty. Therefore, I make sin something that is external and really just behavior and not really something that's inside of me. Friends, that is such a dangerous move regarding sin. It's one we commonly make. If we can just change this behavior, right, then I will, I will put away sin. When we don't really wrestle with the behavior is simply the outflow of the heart. And unless you deal with the heart and its misguidedness, then changing behaviors doesn't mean anything. You can baptize a behavior in the name of religion. It doesn't mean that it's not sin. You can be a perfectionist, become a Christian, enter the church, and now be a Christian perfectionist. Right? You're still committed to the ways in which you think you find life. It hasn't truly been transformed because your heart hasn't been transformed to be free from being a perfectionist. Right? So sin always begins with the heart. And if we're not worried about our cleanliness on the inside, then we've really missed uh, the whole boat, which is what Jesus' point is to the Pharisees. Now, he knows the Pharisees aren't buying what he's selling. And so he pivots here and he engages in very harsh language. He issues six woes. And woes are essentially saying bad things are happening to you because you're committed to bad things. And you should be worried. Right? God's judgment stands at the door. It's very serious language. He issues six of these, three to the Pharisees and three to the lawyers. And what we need to consider now is what the woes teach us. And overall, I think Jesus is pivoting at this point to offer these woes so that he can communicate to the Pharisees, your system doesn't really work, right? You don't really understand what I'm talking about. You think that you're clean on the inside and on the outside because you're busy about what you do on the outside, but I'm going to show you how that doesn't really operate well, and it's not, it's not benefiting you at all, okay? So let's consider the woes briefly. Woe number one is in verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now the Pharisees are seeking to be faithful to give a tenth of all that they possess, which was the Old Testament standard. Uh, one in ten animals, a tenth of your produce, a tenth of uh, your wealth. Right? These things are dedicated to God in the temple. So Jesus acknowledges that they're being faithful in this regard, but what he says is you've neglected love, and you've neglected justice, and you should have been busy about both those and the tithing at the same time. But what the Pharisees have done apparently is to excuse their obedience to a, a larger part of God's character and kingdom by obedience to a smaller aspect of his kingdom, right? It's the notion of, you know, do you excuse yourself from giving generously to the poor because you give a little bit at church? Do you excuse yourself from really serving and entering into relationship because you carry out some small act of service at the church? Are, you, are there ways in which you know that God is calling you to participate more significantly in his kingdom and in the church, but you say, mm, no, I'm already doing this. 
And you excuse the larger obedience for the smaller obedience. In some ways, what Jesus is helping, or I don't know that it's helping, but what he's helping us to see by virtue of his dialogue with the Pharisees is that uh, in, in the sense of sanctification, it's a relationship that often you get out of it what you put into it. And Jesus is trying to highlight to the Pharisees, you think you're putting your all into this? You're not putting anything into it. You're excusing your all by the small offerings that you make. Woe number two occurs in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees, in other words, obey for their own glory. They do it to receive attention, which raises the question both for them and for us, does your private behavior match your public behavior? Is there a difference between you when you show up to church or are around the people of God and you when you're at home or when no one's looking? Why is there a difference? Are you only acting a certain way? Are you only giving an image of righteousness because you believe it will garner you certain relational respect in the midst of this body? What difference exists between the private and the public? The third woe is in verse 44. Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees see the result of some of their decisions. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Man, if Jesus wasn't serious up to this point, he's serious now because that is brutal language. A dead body in Judaism is unclean. To come into contact with it is unclean. And so what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is your very pursuit of cleanliness has made you unclean. Not only has it made you unclean, but it's so subtle and deceptive that those who are coming into contact with you are being made unclean as well because they're walking over your dead bodies and they don't even know it. Those who thought that they were the cleanest and who led the people in cleanliness did nothing of the sort. They actually helped to uh, proliferate uncleanliness. Success. Well, in what ways are we promoting true cleanliness? And in what ways are we like the Pharisees and maybe just promote a change in behavior and not really a cleansing on the inside of the heart? The fourth woe is in verse 47. And here Jesus uh, pivots again to address the lawyers, uh, sometimes translated scribes. Right? These are the experts in the law, those trained to write up legal documents. Now remember, the law in the first century is the Mosaic law. We're not talking about Roman law or some other law outside of Israel. These are experts in the Torah. Right? So uh, they would be very similar to Pharisees. Both would be considered very um, weighty voices in terms of understanding God, his character, and his will for the people of God. Now, you might think that the lawyers seeing Jesus hand down these woes would remain somewhat quiet, uh, but they do not. They say, hey, uh, Jesus, in insulting the Pharisees, you're actually insulting us too. And Jesus says, uh, yes, I am. And if you didn't get that clearly enough, let me issue three more woes to drive that point home. And so the fourth woe in verse 47, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. 
If you ever met someone in the church who loves to talk theology and is quick to tell you what you need to do, but they're probably the last person who will sit and weep with you. They live in a world of knowledge that grants them a sense of wisdom and power, but it's not something that they actually flows out of their heart and gives life to people. And so the scribes have, are busy telling everyone how to obey the law and put more and more burdens on all of the people, but they don't actually help the people to be faithful in the midst of those requirements. The fifth woe is in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Yikes. Now, the lawyers apparently were busy about building memorials to the prophets. They say, we, we look back to the prophets of the Old Testament. We seek to honor them. We're raising money and building these memorials. And Jesus says, they're not memorials to the prophets because your fathers didn't listen to the prophets and you don't listen to the prophets. So they're really memorials to your fathers who are the ones who killed the prophets. And because you're making memorials to the ones who killed the prophets, you're honoring them and participating in their business. Not only that, are you missing the prophets, but you're missing the Son of God who is talking to you right now. And as a result of that, all of the responsibility for all the generations and all the deaths of the prophets that have come before will land on you because you have made the greatest error of all. My goodness, can you imagine how, how self-deceived right, to think I'm a master of the law of God, understanding his revelation, and I don't recognize his revelation in the flesh, sitting with me and talking to me. The sixth woe, is in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Right? Again, the experts in the law, they have the keys of knowledge, of wisdom, which is the word itself. And yet their interpretation has been so false that they uh, have removed the keys. They hinder both themselves from entering the house of knowledge, and they uh, hinder as well those around them that they instruct from entering the house of knowledge. Now, if we're to take a step back from the six woes at this point, what would we say in summary? That the system that the religious leaders have put in place is not something that works. It's something that is facilitating dirtiness rather than cleanliness. It's something that is promoting death rather than life. It is something that is leading people away from wisdom and God rather than toward him. How could the religious leaders get it so wrong? You would think that maybe after Jesus has pointed up all of these issues about their system that they might think, well, you've made some good points, Jesus. We're gonna, we need to weigh these matters. We'd like to hear more from you. Instead, right, being confronted by God, they, they have contempt and they, they conspire. We're going to try to catch him in what he is saying so that we can ultimately put him to death. Rather than hearing wisdom, they are committed to their system, their misunderstanding of God's revelation. It's, it's hardly an understatement to say that they missed it all. Which, frankly, passages like this make me nervous. Because my question is, how do I know I'm not missing it? These people knew more about the Torah in the first century than anybody else. No one was more intimate with the law of God than the religious leaders. 
And they totally misunderstood what God was actually doing in redemptive history. Makes me want to be very careful and to think very deeply about what God is doing in Christ and how I am supposed to be identifying with him in discipleship and what my stewardship teaches me. In fact, we could examine it from this angle. As we went through the woes, did any sting? Of the six woes, did any of them cause you to think to yourself, oh, that cuts a little close to home. Does that not reveal to us that we are perhaps having something in common with the Pharisees or the lawyers, uh, engaging our righteousness and discipleship in a way that is contrary to what God has called us to in Christ? We can be amazed at the dirtiness on the inside, but how can we actually be clean? How can we actually uh, not only remain mindful that we're dirty on the inside and that the, being clean on the inside is the most important part, but how do we actually become clean on the inside? Right, if we're clean on the inside, then everything on the outside is going to flow naturally. It comes out of a heart that loves God and loves others. But how does that actually happen? Well, Jesus actually hinted at it in the midst of the passage in a remarkable way. Of course, missed by uh, the Pharisees entirely, but it occurred in 41. Did you see it? Jesus said, but give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everyone is everything is clean for you. Behold, give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. What in the world does Jesus mean? Well, alms are gifts to the poor. Right? Gifts particularly intended for the poor. And uh, the things that are within, of course, in the context, we would reference the love of God and justice. But ultimately, that which is within is all of you that you would give. And how, as a result of that, then, is everything clean for you? What is Jesus uh, trying to say? Well, if we think about the nature of the charge or the nature of the command, we would think, well, the poor... As Jesus says, we always have with us. The poor is an infinite need. And as we engage the global poor, we are reminded that indeed we could give everything we have and barely scratch the surface of the problem of poverty globally. But that's what Jesus is saying is give everything, give from within. Give yourself to meet this, these needs of the poor. And I think, well, that's a ridiculous request. It's a ridiculous charge because it's impossible because the need is infinite and I am finite. What I have to offer to meet this command is limited and I will be emptied. I will be uh, totally spent and expired as a result of trying to meet this need. And I think uh, if the discussion had gone this way, that Jesus would have said, yes, that's exactly the idea. That by engaging the real pain and brokenness of the world rather than trying to hide from it or protect yourself from it according to the law and simply affirm your own righteousness, then you would realize how dirty you are on the inside. And in realizing how dirty you are on the inside, you would realize that your predicament is hopeless. And you would cry out for mercy, and that's actually where I could meet you. Because Pharisees and lawyers, you don't really think that you're that dirty. You don't think that you need me. And there's not that much that I can do for you because you think you're well when you're deathly ill. 
reminded me of a proverb that I think is lovely, uh, which reads, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Jesus is hinting that somehow in expiring yourself and giving away more than you think you can give, you will be filled up. Water, and you will be watered. I know a pastor who, when he entered the pastorate, he thought that he had the keys of knowledge. After all, he had been to seminary. He'd done well in seminary. And so he was ready to go out and minister to the world. And it wasn't very long in the midst of his ministry that he was overwhelmed. Uh, ministers hear lots of stories. So stories of abuse and neglect and violence, uh, marriages falling apart, people hurting themselves. It was simply too much. And the pastor thought to himself, I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, the world is a lot uglier than I had anticipated. And God, you seem to be a lot less active than I've learned in school. And so uh, this is not really working. And so the pastor, right, what did he do? He drank. And each year he needed a little bit more because the world wasn't becoming a better place. And people weren't healing that significantly. And time went on, and eventually, through some twists and turns, Jesus showed up uh, to that pastor and essentially said, uh, how's that bottle working for you? In which the pastor, who was at the point of recognizing that this was a huge problem, said, yeah, it's not working very well. It's not going well at all. And Jesus, at that point, invited him into... Uh, you know, you would think that Jesus might show up and say, okay, let me heal you. That's not what Jesus does. It's not what he did, right? This is largely autobiography. It's my story. Jesus showed up, and what he said was, uh, I invite you back into the suffering. I invite you back into the pain, because that's what you're trying to hide from. You don't want to enter into it. It's overwhelming, and so you're pulling back and trying to figure out a way to navigate the world that you think protects you from that. He said, only by entering into it and actually realizing that it is overwhelming. And at the point of being overwhelmed, crying out for me, can I actually show up and you can actually be filled with me rather than trying to offer yourself to other people. And that is life. That is what Jesus is trying to drive the Pharisees to and it's what he had to drive uh, me to. It's only in moving toward that place of being overwhelmed, right? The Pharisees have created a system. The lawyers, you have created a system. It's intended to act as a buffer, a protector from the pain and the suffering of the world and a way in which at the same time you can affirm your own righteousness. As long as you rely on that system, right, you don't rely on Jesus. The keys to knowledge, the house of knowledge, is not simply a body of information. It is a person. And only in moving into that person and being filled up by that person do you actually know life. The story of Eden Chen is a good example of what we're talking about today. Eden was a young, uh, young man uh, who spent half of his time growing up in Maryland and half of his time growing up in Hong Kong. Right? He was uh, born to parents who um, went to both sides of, of the world. And so he grew accustomed early on to 
existing in different contexts and putting on different faces and languages and uh, moving back and forth between different cultures. And this was his identity that he could uh, uh, put on different faces. In fact, he described it this way. My ambitions were as quirky and unorthodox as my upbringing. Since I loved watching movies and morphing into different personas, I thought I might like to become an actor someday. And this was his identity, this morphing into different personas. So he, he excelled uh, in certain athletics. He excelled in the video game world. At one point he was ranked, for those of you who follow such things, uh, number 10, or in the top 10 in World of Warcraft 3. That sounds impressive, I'm not sure if it is. He also committed himself, uh, he was in a group, you know, another persona was shoplifting. And his friends, in, uh, he would play a game, they'd go to the mall, and the person who made it out with the highest ticket item, or the highest value of goods in shoplifting was the winner. But uh, over time, Jesus pursued him and wooed him so that he eventually confessed Christ. Uh, but he describes his conversion in this fashion. There wasn't one specific moment that led me to become a Christian. It was God's pursuit, month after month, that slowly broke through my skeptical soul. Of course, I've had periods of growth and periods of failure. Like the actor, see, notice the ways in which even after becoming a believer, we move back and forth in the process of sanctification, nearer to Jesus and farther away. Like the actor of my childhood dreams, I bounced around between different career roles, uncertain which one I wanted to embrace. And first I pursued youth ministry, and then he goes into finance, and then he manages a hedge fund, and then he starts his own business, continually morphing. And he recognizes that this is his identity, and he can find his righteousness and his comfort and his satisfaction in that ability to move into something new and take control and to be good at it. And so he recognized that in order to actually be close to Jesus, he needed to move towards suffering. Right? Give that which is within as alms to the poor. And so Eden uh, said, to stay grounded, I kept pursuing missions opportunities in low-income environments. I ministered in the projects of Washington, D.C., Philadelphia's West Kensington neighborhood, and in South Central Los Angeles. A little over two years ago, my wife and I moved to a home in South Central because we felt that God was present in the diversity and humbleness of its people. So Eden Chen a successful business person, recognizes that if he just lives his life in the wealth and comfort that he possesses, he's not going to be close to Jesus. And so what does he do? Crazy. He moves into South Central LA, right? One of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the entire nation. Because that proximity of the brokenness and that opportunity to give that which is within him as alms to the poor it's what he knows will ultimately make him clean because he can't help but be overwhelmed in South Central LA. And as he is and he empties himself, he can be filled up with life itself. As we think about stewardship, recognize that stewardship is simply the currency of discipleship. And at the core of discipleship is your heart. And as long as your heart relies on things that you manufacture, to give you life and protect your righteousness, your inside will never be clean. But to the degree that you move towards the broken and the pain and say, Jesus, in obedience and faithfulness, I seek to give of myself to the world in a fashion that you gave. 
and I'm going to be emptied and I'm going to be overwhelmed. Will you meet me and fill me up? That's the place where you find life and that's the place where you become truly clean. Let's pray. Jesus, for your gift of grace and for your invitation uh, to pick up our cross and to follow you so that we might know life, we give you thanks. Help us to see our hearts in true fashion, to recognize the dirtiness that is there and to long for your cleansing. Help us not to be fooled as those who pilfer Christianity would assert uh, that your cleaning is magic. Your cleaning requires uh, means of grace. Among them are that we give that which is within as alms to the poor, that we might be filled with you. Would you help us not to be afraid of emptying ourselves, uh, for there's really not much there that's worth keeping. And it's said to be filled up with you and to know uh, our best selves as you have intended them. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.